I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And And this this is Sinai Sinai Temple Torah Torah Talk, a channel for your daily dose of drash, abyssal Torah, from our home to yours. Catch up with the latest rabbi sermons, Torah classes, rabbinic insights, and more. Follow us now so you don't miss a word. Infusing Torah in our daily lives. So I assume we begin. Uh, Because we are in the last parsha of the book of Genesis, um, I want to recap the book from a specific point of view uh, to prepare us uh, a month from now, because our next Torah class, due to traveling and other scheduling problems, will be a month from now, the first uh, Wednesday in February. I want to prepare us for um, the book of Shemot by talking about something that happens all the time in Genesis and happens virtually not at all in Shemot, at least not in the same way. And that is, this morning I'm going to talk about the topic of dreams. Um, To begin with, uh, and we're going to spend most of the time, as I said, looking at Genesis, to begin with, the world sort of starts in a dream because God puts Adam Eve, since they're really one creature that gets split, God puts Adam Eve to sleep. And when Adam Eve wakes up, there are two people there. And there, this does have the quality of a dream to go to sleep when the world is in one state and you wake up and the world is in another state. Um, And at the very beginning of the human story, sleep and insensibility that leads to a new sensibility is part of God's design for human beings and the way that human beings change and grow. And the, uh, the next time that we really see something like that um, is the Brit Ben Habitarim, the covenant between the pieces. And it very much has the feel of a dream. Um, because if you, uh, if you take a look um, at uh, that section in the, uh, in the book of um, Breshit of uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, I'm sorry, verse uh, 12, let's start at the beginning. As the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Remember, he's not Abraham yet. And a great dread descended upon him. And God said to Abram, know well that your offspring shall be strangers in a land not theirs, and they shall be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation they shall serve, and in the end they shall go free with great wealth. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be ripe, buried at a ripe old age, and they shall bring the generation, and so on and so forth. And then a fire passes between pieces. But remember that during all of this, Abraham is asleep. Because 12, it says, he fell into a deep sleep. And he's scared in the sleep. That is, I, we've all had that experience of being terrified at the dream, and then waking up and being so happy that it turned out to be a dream, 
and that in fact, you know, our arm is still attached and is not flying <laughs> over the ocean or whatever the dream is and whatever the terror is that finally we awaken to and it's good and here, so, so you can, um, you can use the Shakespearean, reverse the Shakespearean line that our little life is rounded by a sleep and say that our human life began with a sleep, the sleep of Adam and then the sleep of Abraham. And when Abraham wakes up, <clears throat> um, everything has changed. Uh, that we know now, once Abraham wakes up, what the future is going to bring. Because God says, your descendants are going to be slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years. Now that doesn't happen obviously until much later, but we have already been told, and that's because Abraham has a vision in a dream. Uh, and in fact, later on, Maimonides will say, and the, the rabbis will say, that only Moses really had waking visions, that all the prophets, um, their visions were dreamlike. Um, there's some discussion about that, and it's not, not everybody agrees, but nonetheless, uh, we've been now prepped for the idea that things happen um, in one's sleep, and yet we don't really have um, the, the fullness of dreaming uh, as something pivotal in the story until we get to uh, Jacob. And Jacob begins the, begins sort of the narrative, the threaded narrative of dreaming in the book of Genesis by his dream of the ladders, which we're going to take a look at. Um, and uh, this is after Jacob has run away and he has stolen the birthright from Esau and there is uh, a threat from Esau that he will come after him and kill him. And so Jacob goes off and he is in, he, he left Beersheba and set out for Haran. So he's somewhere between Beersheba and Haran. And this is verse 10 of chapter 28 in the book of Genesis. He came upon a certain place and stopped there for the night for the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. Um, he had a dream. And there was a stairway or a ladder set on the ground and its top reached the sky and the angels of God were going up and down it. And the Lord was standing beside him and God said, I am the Lord your God of your father Abraham and God of Isaac. The ground on which you're lying I will assign to you and your offspring. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the east and the west, to the north, to the south. All the families of earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. I'll protect you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Now, first, let's go back to the dream before we get back to what God says. When you look at a, when you envision a dream in which there is a ladder that reaches from heaven to earth, the first message of that dream 
is that heaven and earth are connected. That is not necessarily taken for granted. I mean, the sky is very high above us, and the earth is what we can touch and see and feel, and the idea that the actions of one affect the other, that they're in some way deeply connected, is represented by this ladder, and also the fact that there is um, interchange between one world and the other world, that the angels remember famously, the angels go up and down the ladder, which means they start here. And so it is possible to go from here to the world above and from the world above back to here. And Jacob, this is not something Jacob has known before this. There's nothing in his life that has demonstrated it, which is the reason that he gets up and says and utters this famous line, there's a God in this place and I didn't know it. So that might mean that he knew there was a God in another place, or it might mean that he didn't really know that there was a God until this moment. Um, and the dream is what convinces him. The other thing to take into account here, which is so obvious that sometimes we don't think about it, is that he believes the dream tells him a truth, which isn't to be taken for granted. I mean, how often do you wake up and you have a dream and you think, well, that was, you know, a bunch of nonsense. Um, and in fact, uh, the Talmud itself, which the Talmud itself, which takes dreams very seriously, says something along the lines of there is no dream without an admixture of nonsense. In other words, every dream has nonsense. I just want to check and make sure there are no questions yet. Um, so, Every dream has some nonsense, and according to uh, Jacob here, this dream is actually true, and he takes it seriously enough that he makes a bargain with God. You know, if you take care of me, and if you do this, and if you do that, we've gone over this before. I don't want to necessarily review it. I want to stick to the dream theme, um, but this idea that dreams come from God, that God is sending you a message, that it's real, that it shows the connection between the two, that also it affects the way you are, all of those things, which we take for granted when we read it, aren't necessarily to be taken for granted in the world, which is why we wake up sometimes and we think, well, that was a ridiculous dream and has nothing to do. Now, I just want to say before I get to the next dream um, that it certainly is true that the, the understanding and the theories about dreams, which still continue, um, there is no universally agreed upon right, template of what dreams mean. But one of the most common psychoanalytic theories is that every dream is really about you, right? Every character in your dream is elements of you. And that may or may not be true, but you can understand applying that to Jacob, that Jacob feels like he's controlled things, right? That there's something godlike about the way he's, but he's also scared because he's run away. Um, and, and the representative and, and the symbol of a ladder is very much a symbol of the ability to make progress, but also the ability to fall back. Um, uh, Anyway, um, Yates has a beautiful image about that, uh, where all ladders start in the 
in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. And uh, for Jacob, that, that poem actually applies very well. So, but now Jacob, Jacob has the dream, he gets older, um, and, uh, and he comes to the, what, what we might see as the second of Jacob's dreams. Um, because in Genesis, to some extent, dreams come in pairs, as we know. Uh, remember that in a minute, Joseph will have two dreams, will have two dreams that he's asked to interpret in the, uh, in the, he'll have two dreams on his own as a child, and he'll have two dreams in the, in the prison, will, he'll be asked to interpret, and then Pharaoh has two dreams. So Jacob's second dream is verse 23 of chapter 32. That same night he arose, taking two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 children. He crossed the fort of the Yabok. After taking them across the stream, he sent across all his possessions, and Jacob was left alone. Okay? And a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. Now, I'm not the first, even of the classical commentators, to say that this happened in a dream. Maimonides uh, considers this a dream. And it makes sense. Because, first of all, Jacob is left alone. And if you're left alone and you wrestle with someone, that is a perfect description of what happens in a dream. It's not a description of what happens in real life, which is a contradiction. If you take this as an angel, which classical tradition does, then it doesn't actually make that much sense because an angel is someone. So how is Jacob left alone? It doesn't say Jacob was left alone and someone came in and he wrestled with him. It says Jacob was left alone and wrestled. So the idea that this is a dream doesn't seem at all far-fetched. The problem with Maimonides' view is that, as I said last time, um, because we looked at this, is that when Jacob wakes up, he walks with a limp for the rest of his days. And normally you would say, look, if you had a dream, it doesn't injure you, but a later commentator the Ritva, trying to reconcile these two things, says if the dream is real enough and powerful enough, its effects stay with you forever. Um, and at least here, that does seem to be the case. That is, the effect of Adam's dream stays with him forever, Adam and Eve. The effect of Abram's dream stays with him forever, his promise and the, the realization of the promise. The effect of Jacob's first dream stays with him because... He counts on God's protection and so on. And the effect of the second dream in a more concrete way, because from now on, he can't walk right since he has been schmeiced by an angel. Um, he's been uh, injured, let us say. I don't know what the right word is. He's been injured by an angel. So uh, skipping over Isaac, who doesn't actually have much of a dream life, which is its own interesting topic. Um, Abram and now uh, Jacob. Both are profoundly affected by the reality of dreams in their lives. And then, of course, we go to the most famous dreamer um, of the book of Genesis and probably the most famous dreamer of the Torah, and that is Joseph. So Joseph, now in chapter 37... First, he gets the coat of many colors, which in this translation is called an ornamented tunic. 
which might be more accurate than coat of many colors, but it loses all the euphony. Um, I mean, a coat of many colors is just a much nicer name than an ornamented tunic, but okay. Uh, one, of the, one of the disadvantages of translating a well-known phrase is you try to find different, so that you can prove that your translation is different and better, you try to find different phrases. I'm not sure what advantage, though, an ornamented tunic has over a coat of many colors. Um, nonetheless, uh, Pasim are probably stripes, um, even though we don't know for sure. So it could be a striped coat, too. Uh, okay. Once Joseph had a dream, this is verse 5, which he told to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Now, the sequence here is really interesting, because usually you would say, Joseph had a dream, and this was the dream. And then at the end of it, you would say, and he told his brothers. But it almost seems as though the purpose of this dream was for him to tell his brothers, because it comes before it even describes what the dream is, right? Um, so Joseph, had, and you can imagine this kid who is either um, naive or egotistical or some combination of both, running to his brothers and telling a dream which is self-evidently going to be uh, distasteful to them. He said to them, hear this dream which I have dreamed, which is also not the way you want to start. Listen, everybody, listen to me. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. The sheaves, by the way, is what we call foreshadowing, because there are going to be sheaves later, right, in the field with Pharaoh. But suddenly my sheaf stood up and remained upright, and your sheaves gathered round and bowed low to my sheaf. His brothers answered, do you mean to rule, reign over us? Do you mean to rule over us? And they hated him even more for his talk about dreams. Now, I'm going to leave it to the Freudians among you to give that dream other interpretations about one sheaf standing up and all the other sheaves bowing down. Um, I'm not sure actually, though, that it adds that much to the basic idea of I am the potent brother and you are the impotent brothers. It's the same idea, right? I'm the one that counts and you guys are like, you know, the extras in the cast. Um, I read the other day you can't call extras extras anymore, right? They have a different name for them. They can no longer be called extras. Uh, I don't remember what the name is, but they're supposed to be called something else because it's like demeaning or insulting to call them extras. Um, so anyway, uh, he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Now this is really, again, notice that he dreams another dream. They don't describe it. They immediately say, told it to his brothers. But also, this is an extraordinarily um, uh, obtuse thing to do, right? By now, he has to know that they all hate him. You can't have 10 brothers hate you and have no idea. You might have one brother who hates you and have no idea, right? But you can have a house full of people that hate you and have no idea. It's like, you know, Cinderella gets it that her sisters don't like her. Um, so... But, but Joseph doesn't seem to, or he doesn't care, which says something really interesting about his psychology. Um, he dreamed another dream and told it to his brother, saying, look, I've had another dream. And this time, 
the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and brothers, his father berated him. This time, by the way, it's not his brothers. His father says, what is this dream you have dreamed? Are we to come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow down, uh, bow low to you to the ground? So his brothers were wrought up at him, and his father kept the matter in mind. Um, now, later on, when his father discovers that he's been um, eaten by wolves, we can imagine that Jacob feels a tremendous amount of guilt because the way Joseph gets captured and put into the pit is because Jacob says, go check on your brothers, which if you know that the brothers hate him and they're out pasturing in the field, why would you do that? Unless it was Jacob's own sense of aggression, because the idea that parents never feel aggressively towards their children is obviously a myth, right? Sometimes you get angry at your kids too. And especially things express themselves even if you don't want to express them explicitly. And so this could have been a way of Jacob expressing his, uh, his repressed hostility towards the child who said, one day you're going to bow down to me. Um, and also it had to make being a parent very difficult in the house when all of your kids hate the other kid and you have a special affection for that kid. You have to be very um, conflicted. Uh, I, mean, I, I know of a, of a story that is not too dissimilar and, and the parents are basically always trying to balance the dislike of the siblings and their love of the sibling that the others dislike. And it's really very, family dynamics are extremely tricky and, and, they, and they don't go away. It's not like, you know, okay, you can fire this person from the business and then you've gotten rid of the identified troublemaker, you know, family is family. And even when the family gets estranged, the estrangement, Produces its, produces its own pressure on the family. So there is no way of untangling that that Jacob could do, even if he sent Joseph away. Sending Joseph away has its own implications, as we know with Hagar and Yishmael when Avram did it. Um, okay, so... Joseph goes off. He meets his brothers in the field. They throw him into a pit. He, we, we went through this last time, and I don't want to go through it again. He gets taken by Midianites, Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites, Midianites. Very confusing. If you want more details, you can look at the Torah class from last time. And he, uh, he ends up um, in, uh, in Potiphar's palace in Egypt. In Potiphar's palace in Egypt, um, he ends up in the place where you have dreams, i.e., the bedroom, and she, uh, Potiphar's wife insists that he lie with her. He says no, um, and she uh, accuses him basically of attempted rape, um, and he's thrown into prison. Um, so then we come to chapter 40 and the, and the beginning of the final dream drama. Um, Two of Pharaoh's um, attendants are in prison with Joseph. 
the cupbearer and the baker. And the same night, each had a dream, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were distraught. Now, I think that this is in some ways a pivotal verse, because this is the Joseph who seemed not to notice that his brothers hate him. He really didn't seem to notice, because he told the second dream, which you wouldn't do if you knew your brothers hated you. You just keep your mouth shut. And even after he told the two dreams, and it was pretty clear everyone hated him, he went out to find his brothers pastoring in the field. He didn't say, no, Dad, you know, I shouldn't go out there because they hate me. So it seems as though he was completely oblivious to the idea that anyone could hate him. But now he's been thrown into prison by Potiphar, who before then treated him very well. And he recognizes that, this sounds strange, but he recognized, oh, it is possible to dislike me, Joseph. And that opens him up to a range of understanding human emotion that he didn't understand before because now he sees the, the distraught face of two strangers when he couldn't even see the hated hatred in his brothers. So he comes to them and he says, you know, why so, why so downcast today? Why are you upset? And they said, we have dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And when they say there's no one to interpret them, the, in the ancient world, there were professional dream interpreters. Um, so Joseph says to them, surely God can interpret, tell me your dreams. The chief cupbearer said, in my dream, there was a vine in front of me, three branches. Um, the clusters ripened into grapes. I took the grapes, with fair, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said, this is its interpretation. The branches are three days, and three days Pharaoh will pardon you and restore you to your post. You'll place the Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as was your custom when you were his cupbearer. But remember me, think of me when all is well with you again, and do me the kindness of mentioning me to Pharaoh so as to free me from this place. For in truth, I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, nor have I done anything that should put me in this dungeon. When the chief baker saw how favorably he was interpreted, he said to Joseph, in my dream, similarly, there were three open work baskets. In the uppermost were all kinds of food that the baker prepares, and the birds were eating out of the basket above my head. Joseph answered, this is its interpretation. Three baskets are three days. Three days Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale you on a pole, and the birds will pick off your flesh. Curiously enough, he doesn't, it doesn't record that the baker thanked him um, for the interpretation. Uh, but you can see, by the way, I mean, if you see the difference of the two dreams, there are differences of the two dreams, right? Someone's eating out of the basket above his head. It's not Pharaoh. With the cupbearer, it's Pharaoh who's take, it's Pharaoh's cup that he, uh, that he puts in Pharaoh's hand. So even the dreams suggest their interpretation, and there's a lot of analysis about the way in which the two of them approached him, that the baker approached him second because he was more scared that what he had done was worse, um, and that Joseph read their personalities as well as their dreams. Whatever the case is, he gets it right, okay? In three days, one is restored, the cupbearer is restored, the baker is killed, and the cupbearer, as is the case with so many human beings, forgets the person who had done good for him because now he's back where he wants to be. And Pharaoh, and after all, Joseph's a prison in the dungeon um, until Pharaoh has these two dreams. Uh, first of all, 
He has the dreams of seven uh, fat cows and seven gaunt cows, and the gaunt cows eat the fat cows. I'm going to abbreviate. And then seven ears of grain. This goes back, remember, to the sheaves of uh, Joseph. There's a connection there. Um, and uh, behind them are seven uh, thin ears, and the thin ones swallowed the full ones, and Pharaoh awoke. So now Joseph is returned. The cupbearer remembers Joseph from the dungeon and brings him back to uh, Pharaoh, and he interprets the dream and is restored, and the story continues. But what do we learn from all of the... Um, from all of the pivot, and there's a lot of it, around dreams in the book of Genesis. Um, the, the interpretation of the Joseph story that I mentioned before is that, that Joseph falls by dreams and rise, rises by dreams. He falls when he can only hear his own dreams, and he rises when he starts to listen to the dreams of others, right? The cupbearer, the baker, and Pharaoh. But more than that, more elemental than that, is that the Torah clearly believes that dreams are not fully a product of the human psyche, that some dreams at least come from beyond, right? The dream of the ladders is not purely Jacob's psyche because God speaks to him. Um, Abraham falling asleep and having the Brit Ben HaBetarim, the covenant between the pieces, is God speaking to him. And yet the Torah also gives a lot of scope for the idea that dreams are psychological manifestations of the condition of the person, um, both the cupbearer and the baker. Their dreams are different in part because probably they know what they've done to Pharaoh and what Pharaoh is likely to do to them, whether it's a temporary suspension or you're going to get kicked out of the league, so to speak. Um, but also uh, the, the fact that... Um, Joseph can read Pharaoh's dreams is at least suggestive of the idea that there's some that he has wisdom beyond himself because he always says God will and he never says I'll interpret the dream he always says God will interpret the dream um, and the rest of the Torah depends far less on dreams than Genesis does and Genesis is the most primitive book of the Torah. By primitive, I don't mean anything negative. I mean the closest to the original condition of human beings, right? Civilization hasn't quite been built up yet. When we get to Egypt, you're in a fully developed civilization. Um, and, and the idea that civilization pulls us further and further away from our origins exists um, not in, only in the Torah, but today. And it suggests that, that the fact that the dreams are clustered in Genesis might suggest that these are, in fact, if we go back to what we are, to our unvarnished self, that dreams are real and that they speak to us in a way that's very hard to recapture with all the noise of the world. And I will just close by saying that years ago, I read a book on dreams, that, a book on sleep, that said, I wish I could remember the name of the book, and I don't know if this is still a scientific theory or not, but the theory of the book was that we are actually, our natural state is sleeping and dreaming, and that the human body has chemicals that keep us up. We think of our natural state as being up 
and that actually then every now and then we go to sleep. But it says, no, actually our natural state is sleeping and the natural condition of our brains is dreaming, but that we have these breaks of wakefulness in between sleep. Um, and our little life is rounded on the sleep. Um, so uh, it may be that, that the, the genesis is talking more about how we naturally are and that we are more dreamers than we think, but we've gotten away from that state. And so in that sense, no less about ourselves and about the connection between that world and this. Okay, questions. Questions from here or questions online? Yeah, please. Yes. Um, when uh, the question was, Av Avram is predicted, it's predicted to Avram 400 years of slavery, so apparently everything has been set. All I can say is this is a version of the question we have asked 7,000 times, which is if God knows what's going to happen in the future, do human beings actually create the future or not? It's just another version of the exact same question. So, but it's clear from the beginning that God says, yes, you're going to go down into slavery. Um, and the assumption of the Torah seems to be that despite that, human beings by their actions cause this to happen, um, even though God already knows that it's going to happen. How you work that out is up to you. But this is a question you can ask about anything in the Torah. Um, Cain kills Abel. Didn't God know that Cain was going to kill Abel? Well, if God knows everything, God knew that. So did Cain have a choice to kill Abel? That's a problem. Um, and the, I mean, Rabbi Akiva in the, in the Mishnah says, um, hakol, hakol um, safui v'rishut netuna. Everything is known, foreseen, and free will is granted. He just says, just both are true but he doesn't teach you how to recognize it, how to reconcile it, rather, because it seems impossible to reconcile. There are theories, but it's very difficult to reconcile. Um, but that's how the, the tradition believes both. That would require a philosophy class. Yeah. Not Yeah, and then some. So uh, the question was, did Joseph's awareness precede um, his recognition in the prison of the cupbearer and the baker? Did it start with Potiphar's house because he recognizes that being with Potiphar's wife is going to lead to a bad consequence? Um, that is possible. Uh, there, are, there are nice midrashim about why he didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife, since after all it's... Uh, it's a, um, it's a difficult thing to understand how this young kid who has no experience of the world is in the room of this beautiful woman and says, no, 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 I can't. Um, and in fact, as you know, in the Torah, 
the vayima'en, the word, the Hebrew word that says, and he refused, has a shalshelet above it. And a shalshelet is a note where you go up and down three times, which suggests that he vacillated. Um, he said, nah, but finally says no. And there is, the Midrash says what happened was he saw his father's face in front of him, which again is either very Freudian, super ego, right? He couldn't imagine doing that because he still had that uh, sense. Or Chaim Zabato has a really nice, um, an Israeli Sephardic rabbi and writer, has a really nice interpretation where he says, look, if there were, we've, we've talked before about whether there were any mirrors in the ancient world. He says, if there were any mirrors in the ancient world, if they existed at all, the place they would exist would be in the bedroom of a very wealthy woman. And so if he saw himself in the mirror, what would he look like to himself? He'd look like his father, because he never saw himself otherwise. So maybe he saw himself in the mirror and actually, like it reminded him of his own father and he said, I can't do this. Um, why do you think God did not reveal prophetically to Jacob that Joseph was alive? I do not know. Um, I've asked, doesn't tell me. Um, it's very, I mean, it's part of the drama of the story. Uh, Jacob has other prophetic revelations. Um, and yes, and also I wonder if Freud should have a session with Jacob, at least one, uh, probably several. Um, but, but I think, I mean, it's, it's part, part of the drama of the story is that Jacob really seems not to know that he's alive and also that Joseph never sends a message to him and says, by the way, I'm hanging out in Egypt and I'm alive. So there are a lot of, and it could be that the, that the, um, the break between the two of them, because Jacob is the one who sends him away, um, is part of the meaning of the story. Um, and from Sharon, uh, that was from, from Greg, uh, and from Sharon, following up with my question, doesn't it say that the brothers issued a ban against revealing the truth to Jacob, but why would God abide by their ban? Well, the, it, the brothers clearly conspire not to tell um, not to tell Jacob that he disappeared from the pit, which is what happens, right? They go back and he's not there anymore, but they could easily have believed that he was killed. And, but they are, yes, perpetrating a fraud, no question about that. Um, and presumably the reason that God doesn't interfere is in the Torah, when people do bad things, God lets them do it. Then there are consequences later, but God doesn't stop Pharaoh from enslaving the Jews. God doesn't stop Moses from hitting the rock. God doesn't stop, you know, uh, um, uh, Lavan from trying to trick Jacob. Um, it's just, if God, once God starts interfering with free will, so the story's over, because then everybody just does what God wants and we're all puppets. Okay, so two things. Did they take a long time to bury Jacob and aren't, they, aren't you supposed to bury someone as, long, as soon as possible? Also, you remind me that I did want to finish by just saying when Vayachi, Jacob gives a blessing, which is a kind of vision and a kind of dream, right? It's like, this is what will happen in the future, which is also, so the book of Genesis in a way ends on a dream. 
And yeah, I think the reason is because they had to bring him back to Egypt, to Israel, and they were in Egypt. And so I don't think we can retroject modern Jewish customs or even rabbinic Jewish customs on what the Jews would do in Egypt. They probably followed, you know, Egyptian customs. Um, Right, but I'm saying, but they're in Egypt and in the court of Egypt, so they probably followed what they had to do. Um, and even then, Jewish law has variations in different places at different times. I mean, now it is the custom, especially among the most traditional, to bury as soon as possible. Um, but even that gets delayed sometimes, bring bodies back to Israel, and, you know, there are problems, as I'm sure there were then with customs and... The border, borders are never easy. Yes. So speaking. So the, I mean, this is an interesting question. I'll 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 close with this idea. Can you change God's mind? Um, the prayers seem to suggest yes, right? God, don't do this, do that. Um, but it seems highly unlikely that God, who knows everything, will change God's course because we say, uh, we who know very little, say, oh no, no, God, I know you're going to do this, but really, <laughs> this is better. Trust, trust me, David here, you know, I mean, um, and so the way, I, nonetheless, a lot of rabbinic thought says that. I don't want to suggest for a minute that it doesn't, that that's part of the wonder of God's being is that in fact, but what I, what I want to suggest to you is to think of it the way that Leon Medina suggested a couple hundred years ago. He said, when you pray, think of it as a, a man standing by a lake and he sees someone pulling a boat to the shore. He said, if you were mistaken about the way, like about mechanics and motion and the way those things work, you might think he's pulling the shore to the boat. So a lot of people, when they pray, they think what they're doing is they're pulling God to them. In other words, I want this, God change the way I want it. He says, but that's not actually what you're doing. If you pray effectively, what you're doing is you're aligning your will with God's. You're pulling your boat to the shore. So I, that makes more sense to me. But in such things, nobody can say they know for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And the question is, when those biblical characters, there are, as you said, several instances where biblical characters seem to change God's mind. God is going to destroy the people. Moses says, don't. God doesn't. All I can tell you is there, there, the two easy answers to that are one, the Bible tells, the rabbis tell us that the Bible speaks in human terms. So we don't really understand what that means, that God was going to and God decided not to. That's human terms for God. And second is we don't know what God's ultimate design was. Maybe God's ultimate design was to get them to stand up. Who knows? It's very hard to say, but, but you can't make philosophically consistent um, God philosophically consistent the way most philosophers would like without saying something like we don't just we just don't understand exactly how God works. 
For those of you who would like, by the way, uh, I recommend it from time to time, although I haven't read it in years. But there is a book about, um, about this question in a way uh, that was written by Jack Miles that actually won a Pulitzer Prize, which is really rare for a book on the Bible to win a Pulitzer Prize. It's brilliantly written. Um, and it's called God, a Biography. And what he decided to do was he said, I'm going to read the Bible as though God is the main character. And I'm not going to make any assumptions theologically, whatever. He was trained as a Jesuit priest, but then he became the editor of the LA Times book review and wrote a lot of wrote a lot of books on things. He said, I'm not going to make any assumptions about God is all powerful or God is this or God is that. I'm just going to read the book like it's a novel that appeared on the shelves and write about what kind of character God is. And it's really perceptive and very smart and it yields a lot of insights. Um, so I recommend it uh, and I will see you, God willing, in a month. Thank you.